Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Charlie Cox, author of the best-selling She Must Be Mad, a breathtakingly beautiful and moving collection of poems dealing with mental health and mental illness, body image, sex, and growing up in the modern world. She's also an ambassador for the mental health charity MQ and a totally wonderful and talented person. Charlie, welcome. Thank you so much for your time today. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So, as you know, I have so many questions for you. Uh, But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about She Must Be Mad and why you decided to write it? (sighs) Uh, It always feels so strangely nerve-wracking trying to sum it up in a way that doesn't sound incredibly bourgeois and sort of (laughs) self-loving. But I've written poetry for as long as I can remember, Mm. I think. And, yeah, I must have been... 12 or 13 where it really started to become quite a prominent part of my free time and how I was choosing to secretly um, articulate myself and how I was feeling and what I was going through and yeah, I did it in secret for so long and I never I don't think I ever really gave myself the agency of saying I want to be a poet what mm. I'm writing is poetry mm. I was just writing things in the backs of diaries or scribbling things like in my phone notes or and I then went on to become a digital producer and had a really wonderful career for six or so years and loved it but just felt so I think honestly I felt really stressed and realized mm. that I couldn't quite keep up with the pace of what I was doing and what was going on around me and it looked really shiny and everyone that was like, oh, I do this now. Or, oh, this is my job. I'm working mm. for this person. But inside I was in total turmoil of I'm going to get found out soon that I don't think my brain can quite keep up with the pace and the intricacy of what's expected of me. And a friend said, when I said that I was feeling frustrated with my job, I was like, you write poems all the time. And like, sometimes when you're drunk, you'll stand on the side of the sofa at a party and like tell everyone to be quiet and then perform one why do you never do anything with that I'm like, oh it's really embarrassing I don't want to do that and then he said okay right I'm so bored of you complaining this is not counterproductive well it's counterproductive to anything so every day for a month you have to write and post a poem just get over the fear do it and wow thought, every day is a lot I know at the time I was like yeah that's a radical idea that's there's one way to do it. And about six days in, I was like, oh God, what on earth have I signed up to? But seeing the response was really exciting. I I couldn't get my head around the fact that anyone could possibly be interested in it. And so I started putting them online and found an agent through that. And she said, do you want to write a book? Uh, yeah, of course I do. She's like, what's the book going to be? And then went into that perpetual doom of, I don't know. (laughs) And we spent a good year and a half 
courting, I suppose, trying to work out what the book would be, what is what is my first book. And when I was putting together pitch material, it just became more and more clear that what I really wanted to put out was poetry and short stories. And it felt like a really good time. Um, you know, there's a lot more conversation around mental health and mental illness than there ever has been. But I felt a little bit frustrated with how often that conversation would happen and it never really hit the true points of what we're all trying to talk about and what we're all trying to sort of advocate Mm. so I wanted to I guess I wanted to write She Must Be Mad a selfishly for past Charlie to say yeah do you remember all those cringe things you did they're actually not that awful Mm. and they have a lot of a lot of agency behind them and also I know firsthand how bloody difficult it is being someone that is going through a mental illness so young and not understanding it and trying to work out what is a personality quirk, what is teenage angst, what's growing up and also what is fundamentally wrong with my brain. So I wanted to try and put it all together as a piece of punctuation to say this was a really difficult, horrible time of my life but there was some hope at the end of it. So you said so many interesting things that I want to ask you more about. Uh, But first of all, you've been writing it for as long as you can remember. What's your earliest memory of of scribbling down poetry in your diary? I remember quite sweetly, I think. Um, I must have been about four or five, and I had a homework assignment, (laughs) homework assignment at four or five, Uh, to write a poem and calling my granddad as I did every day I'd call him every day after school and he'd go what have you learnt today and I'd splutter whatever and this one time I was like oh I've got this homework and I have to write a poem and as a kid both my mum and my grandfather and I would always make up stupid songs we were always rhyming we were always singing Mm. I don't come from a particularly musical or artistic background but it was always something that we did and so when I said I've got to write a poem he was delighted like ah at last something that we can have fun with and I remember doing that and getting off the phone and feeling so fulfilled mm. and being really excited and running back downstairs to my mum going oh, granddad and I just wrote a poem and it's so good <laughs> and then weeks later of the high of writing this poem with him I called him and said oh granddad I've started writing more poems it's like, amazing what are they about? Well, I've written this one and I think it's actually really good. Um, it's called The Owl and the Pussycat. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I read him The Owl and the Pussycat down the phone and it wasn't until I was about 12 that I realised he knew that it was not me. The Owl and the Pussycat. But it was so, oh, it's brilliant, you're so smart, oh. you have so much promise, what a future you have in, in the world of literature. I, was like, I know, I'm just, I'm so clever, I can't believe I've come up with this, but it's, it's interesting, I've never really thought about it that much, but I had, I had such a high from writing that poem with him and it felt good and felt great and I just wanted to impress him and I wanted to impress him with poetry. Yeah, and it sounds there like you were very proud of it and very open about it, but you also mentioned that you did it in secret. Uh, how did that come about and, and why did you keep it a secret? I think as a teenager, or really I would say any age that I was up until last year, everything felt embarrassing to me. Anything that I was interested in, anything that was a hobby or a passion 
because it wasn't athletic mm. or because it wasn't what I thought was taught to be cool. Mm. I was just so mortified. And even when I was writing poems as a teenager, I wouldn't even admit to myself that that's what I was doing. It was, it was more of a, I don't quite understand how I feel and I don't quite understand what it is I'm going through, but this feels like the only way that I can express myself without really having to confront it. Mm. You know, you can be quite abstract mm. and it doesn't have to make too much sense or, and because nobody else was looking at it, I could be as honest as I wanted and know that it didn't have any consequence to it. Because you've spoken about it being cathartic and almost like a form of therapy. Mm. Is that the mechanism then? It's, it's the fact that you can be honest and... Yeah, massively. Personally, I would never write anything for the sole purpose of it having an audience. It's always been, I want to write this because I need to get it out of yeah. myself. It, it, it's always everything that I've written and I'm sure will continue comes from a really uncomfortable place and a feeling of I've got to untangle whatever this is that's going on inside of me. I can't quite work it out. I'm not sure if I should be worried about it. I'm not sure if I should be excited by it. Am I in love? Am I on the edge of a mental breakdown? Mm -hmm. Both very similar feelings, <laughs> uh, very <laughs> frighteningly similar. And the only way I've ever been able to deal with it without, I don't know, like spontaneously bursting into tears mm. has been to write it. Because then it's tangible and physical and in front of you. And it's so much easier to confront something when it's, there mm. as opposed to somewhere inside of you which you can't quite reach but once it's in front of you you can go oh that's interesting oh that's worrying oh oh maybe maybe that will be fine or mm. wow I didn't realize that's how bad it was mm. and so much of the poems in She Must Be Mad I mean they range from I think some of the the earliest ones I was 13 when I wrote them it's and amazing. then right up until I was 22 and looking back I mean it was painful so much more painful than I thought it would be going through old diaries I was like rebooting old laptops mm. doing everything I could to scrounge through old material and it was heartbreaking I I had almost chosen I maybe I'd chosen to forget but I don't think I ever realized how unhappy I was mm. and it was there so honest and and laid bare and in ways that I could never articulate now mm. which is quite mad you write and speak so beautifully about mental health and mental illness um and you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder when you were 17 yeah. can you tell me a little bit about how you felt at the time and how that's informed your desire now to destigmatize the issue I was terrified I I it, it was overwhelming fear mm. of I'd for so long I had known that there was something that was wrong and I'd ferried myself back and forth to a GP since I was 14 begging them to take me seriously and taking them poems mm. and diary I was like this is not right this is worrying why can't you take me seriously and I was always sort of met with you're probably hormonal right or you know being 16 is really hard for everyone mm. like, oh, I know <laughs> but 
these things are quite jarring and worrying. And I think as well with friends, it got to a point where very sweetly and lovingly had helped me through a lot of awful stuff and then went, we can't do anything for you anymore. You know, there's only so much we can say, come around for dinner or sleep on my sofa or here's a cuddle. It's, you need medication, Mm. you need therapy. There's something not quite right. And when I got the diagnosis, I'd half expected it, you know, the trials and tribulations of the internet, I'd probably self-diagnosed myself before I'd hired it from a doctor. And I went, I remember going into that meeting, being strangely quite excited, thinking today is the day I find out, I know, Mm. I'll, I'll get to hear that I haven't been making this all up. And instead, when this very old man by a grand bookcase went, yes, it's bipolar too. I just burst into tears and thought, how am I going to tell anyone? Mm. How, I don't even have the language to explain it. I don't, I know how I feel, but I don't know what that means. And because the science on so much um, of mental illness is, you know, it's not quite developed yet. Not even a doctor can really explain to you where's that come from? Why is it manifested? What does that mean for your future? Mm. You know, I was slung all of this you know, as a woman, you're very young to get diagnosed. Most women don't get diagnosed until they're in their 30s. Uh, we don't know what medication we can give you yet because of your age. And we also don't know what will work for you. Um, and then also, it's probably going to get worse as you get older, but we don't know that yet. Mm. And I was just sat there on my own at 17 going, um, okay, so how do I leave this meeting? I thought mm. I was going to leave and go, we've got an answer. I can do this and everything's going to be fine. And Instead, I thought most people's reference point to bipolar disorder is she's absolutely nuts. Mm. Like, she's insane. She's crazy. That's that's not like depression. That's not like anxiety, which mm. we're only just coming to talk about um, in a proficient and caring way. But with bipolar, it was you hear voices, you get highs. You mm. know, one minute you're here, next minute you're there. You're so f- it's a frustrating strain of mental illness because mm. to be around it is oh, she's so unpredictable or I'm like mm, I'm, I'm still me I'm, mm. st- I'm still exactly the same person but as soon as you put a name to it it just I, I couldn't digest it I, I went into total denial and very fortunately I've got some very emotionally intelligent friends who I sat with one um, by a pub in Chiswick and and so um good news it's like right it's bipolar oh good news like well we know what it is Mm. and I can't tell anyone about it though and he said why don't you write about it how you're feeling must be how so many other people feel you're not the only one that's going through this try and write about it and so I did and posted it on my then blog and Oh, that feeling of like when you text an ex-boyfriend and then you have to throw your phone across the room and pretend that it's never happened and mm. pray that he never responds. It was like that, but to a couple of hundred thousand people and the response was overwhelming. Heartbreaking, totally heartbreaking to see that so many people were going through the same thing and none of us really knew how to help the other. But that feeling of forum and community and ah, I'm not a weirdo. I'm not the only one that's struggling with this. 
made it feel a little bit easier and why now it feels so important you know it's one thing ad- admitting something or one thing uh, saying you've got something and why it's important to care about it but then following through with that and making sure that that is what I spend some time on and it would almost be totally pointless gathering a ton of people and saying we're all in this together but I'm I'm out now uh, mm. that's quite scary don't want to take responsibility for this but good luck guys maybe mm. see you on the other side so it's almost a, a a duty really yeah it does it does feel that way not in a self-aggrandizing sense but I put it out there yeah and so now it is my responsibility duty and responsibility yeah. to make sure that whatever conversation happens around it and they're on you know I'm I'm selling a book on it and I'm very aware of that and it has in parts become my career which I never imagined in a million years if I mm. think back to that feeling of I can never tell anyone else about this mm. and now I spend so much time on it it is really important to me that that continues until I until I feel satisfied that I can see a change in the conversation that's happening Something you said uh, that I found really interesting was that there's almost like a hierarchy of mental illness, uh, depression and anxiety, which you mentioned earlier, are palatable, but there are other mental illnesses like bipolar or schizophrenia, which we struggle with socially. I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that. I think on on a really basic level, Everybody, I mean, everybody has mental health. Uh, not everyone has a mental illness. And everybody can relate to feelings of sadness or feelings of stress. Mm. Everyone has been anxious about something. Everybody has felt an overwhelming low over something. And that is what anxiety and depression are, but in much greater forms. Whereas things like bipolar and schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders it's so unknown unless you've gone through it because they are so, I mean, they're so all-consuming, but they're they're completely different feelings and sensations and moods than what your sort of average human being would feel. So Mm. on one hand, I really understand it. You know, of course, there have been times in my life where I've heard voices or I've been so high I've not slept for two days and I've not needed to eat. That is almost impossible to explain to someone properly Mm. unless they've been through it and also it's still so deeply enmeshed with stigma of and I get it like when I say out loud I'm like god I can't believe I'm the sort of person that hears voices I'm I'm awful to myself in that sense Mm. and it's going to take us a really long time to relearn language and relearn feelings towards things that are so new and things we don't still really understand but it is hard in we are doing a lot of praising at the moment of oh, we're really crushing the chat around mm. mental health like yeah we are we're nailing mental health chat we are in no way touching the surface on people that live with mental illnesses mm. it's it's completely different they're both so important but i i fear we we don't spend more time on the one that is really dangerous for mm. so many people and something that we still really don't understand and it's it's funny doing public speaking about this 
ordinarily I'll be sat on a panel and three other panels will say I've experienced depression or I um, I live with an anxiety disorder mm. and I can quite confidently follow up and say oh, I, I live with depression I have an anxiety disorder I've been diagnosed with PTSD and bipolar is always the one that falls out of my mouth last mm. and I can't quite face a room full of people and say ah, and I've got bipolar mm. it feels terrifying because I guess because it's not really understood and mm. and the characters in television or you know you think of bipolar and then you think how it's depicted in the media mm. it's always the don't know if I'm allowed to swear batshit mental one you're like, definitely allowed to swear <laughs> it's, it's always the it's always the woman that's so erratic and can't get her shit together and oh my god what's she doing oh it's and that's not what it's like mm. it's you know more often than not it's a cyclical thing it happens in months it's not one minute she's like this and the next minute she's like that it's not like the psycho ex-girlfriend it's something that so many people live with but we don't see that mm. we what we're taught about it is terrifying so what do you think the solution to that is is it is it just a a case of education and, and changing the messaging around yeah. them I think it's better representation in mm. media absolutely I think broadcasters and script writers have a responsibility to research mm. characters if that's how they're going to write them I think it's quite lazy and also the science you know we we don't know enough about it and mm. I would love to castigate GPs and doctors and psychiatrists because that feels easy to do but they don't know they mm. they don't have the the means or the tools for the research that is needed to work it out and to properly understand it so it's it's a two-part mission I think but the main one is that we just don't know enough so it's it's hard to be angry with the world that oh the messaging is wrong or this is bad or people aren't getting it when base level is doctors aren't quite there with understanding it yet. You were approached about a book deal and uh, went through the process of going back and finding all these poems that you'd written over the years. Was it difficult deciding what to include and what to leave out? How did you, how did you sort through it? Yeah, initially I, th I was much more... I was much more precious and guarded over what I'd put in the proposal and what I had offered out pre-first draft. And then I had a, a real sense, uh, there's a particular segment within the book which focuses on bodies. And I'd never, I'd never really given myself enough emotional space to think about how I thought about my body mm. or, or what my relationship was. And it was really startling as mm. soon as I started unpacking it all and thinking of anecdotes or times in my life where I felt confronted with it and then looking back on poems they were so vulnerable so vulnerable that I still don't think I'm through a lot of that and they are they're very much unended questions and and feelings but I also didn't want to be in a position where I looked back on the book and looked back on the publishing and thought Oh, I didn't quite go there. There, there could have I could have said more on that. Mm. Or I wanted to be as honest as I possibly could to myself and how I felt when I was putting it out. 
and it didn't feel right to then suddenly hold back on some things just because I hadn't worked them out yet. So it was, this makes me feel uncomfortable, which means it's probably right that it goes in because if I feel uncomfortable, there's going to be a million other people that also feel uncomfortable. It must have been tremendously nerve-wracking once you'd submitted it. It was a long... I mean, fortunately, it was quite a quick process, but it felt like years. Yeah. It uh, Maybe two weeks before it came out, I was the worst version of a human being I've ever <laughs> been. I was a nightmare to be friends with. I was a nightmare to be in the presence of because I was so racked with nerves of... <gasps> What if I'm about to ruin my life? Mm. What if this is like, what if A, what if it's not very good? And B, what if I've just outed myself as the most ludicrous, insane person ever? What if old friends or family members read this and go, well, that that's not who we thought you were? Mm. Or, or what if they felt bad about it? Or what if they felt ashamed of me? Or what if they felt guilty? And it became as turmoil of this isn't just about me anymore mm. this this felt like my story when I was writing it but as soon as I put it out it's it's not mine mm. uh, it's a representation of other young women and what they're going mm. through and it's a representation of how incredible my friends and family were but it was also my plight mm. it, it was hard it was much much harder than I thought it would be a lot of people early on said, "Are you sure about this? Mm. This is a this is a big this is very brave." And I'd always scoff and go, "Ugh, brave, not brave." It's like brave is the fact that I've got this far. That feels mm. pretty bloody brave. Putting it out, whatever. And then two weeks before, I was like, "Oh God, this is actually quite brave and really scary. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't have done this." And you were right, and I should have listened. And is it too late to revoke? And they're like, "No, it's gone to press." I'm like, "No." Uh, and then it came out and it wasn't bad. <laughs> no, it did phenomenally well. It was a Sunday Times bestseller. I think uh, it was Sunday Times style called you Social Media's Answer to Carol Ann Duffy, uh, which is a big compliment. And it, that must have been an equally incredible feeling, but quite different from the one before. What was that like? I've always wanted to be a writer. I've, I've always wanted to write and I've n- never... I'd never given myself that as a gift. I had always, I'd always known I wanted to be successful. And so I drove that. And if I was good at something, I'd do that. And then that had to be really successful. But I always knew that none of that success would mean anything until I was successfully a writer. And then seeing that, I, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. None of this. It's, it's so boring when people say, none of it feels real, it's all like a dream, but I can't believe that this is my job now, and it, I'm so stupefied by the whole thing, the fact that I have an agent, and the fact that I have a publisher, and the fact that I'm now professionally a poet. Like, it's the most Dickensian <laughs> thing in the card? world. <laughs> nope, but it oh, is on my should. Tinder bio. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it it's it's such a it's such an overwhelming sense but i important and i try and clarify it to myself often the ecstasy of knowing that this is true comes off the back of the fact that i'm professionally writing and not because i've professionally shared my sad story mm-hmm. and they they're two very different things i can't believe i'm a writer you often get 
described as an insta poet, uh, which is a phrase <laughs> you don't love. Uh, not a big fan. <laughs> tell me about that. Ugh, it's so. It's never said in a good way. You know, nobody has ever referred to someone as an insta poet in a kind tone or manner. Um, it, it also just seems so bizarre to me that I've never written a poem specifically for Instagram. Mm. I have never used a four by four square as a parameter for what I want to write about. I've never really thought about the people that are going to look at it. I just write poems and it so happens that I occasionally put them on Instagram. I post more pictures of my face than I do of poetry. So again, it, it feels quite bizarre. But it's a term that has deliberately been put in place to degrade the quality of somebody's work. Mm. You know, you would never look at, I don't know, like Tennyson and call him a book poet. No. Or it, it just seems it just seems really unfair because it is literally only there to degrade the quality of somebody's work. You know, if it's online, then it must mean it's instant and not well thought. And mm. poetry has always been a really exclusive club. It, it's for academics, it's for rich people, it's for smart people. And widely, the most famous stuff and the stuff that you study at school and you know about is by white old men that mm. are now dead. Mm. And this idea of opening up a forum to people of colour, um, women to to write freely. Um, it, I, I think it's no coincidence that a lot of successful Insta poets are people that are black or gay or female mm. uh, and why that side of uh, academia feel a little bit uncomfortable mm. because suddenly they're their lovely exclusive box, which they know the parameter to, has been blasted open. Mm. And now they're very precious to protect what they feel like they worked and studied so hard for, which I understand in a sense, but when you really dig deep into it, you realize how bad a lot of that is and, and where that probably comes from. It's really interesting because by posting on Instagram and getting your message out there and by virtue of the fact that Instagram has opened the doors to so many new voices it's serving this quite positive function and yet we hear so much about the negative side of social media and how it's something we should all quit and abstain from what's your personal relationship with social media like? Terrible <laughs> so bad. What, what's terrible about it? Oh, I endlessly scroll. I have the world's worst paranoia over what people think of me or I spend far too much time on it and it definitely doesn't make me feel any better. I'm very grateful for it. I wouldn't be sat here if it wasn't for it. But, yeah, my God, I... I can convince myself the most ridiculous things in the world off the back of spending half an hour on Instagram. Mm. You know, problems that, or issues with my body that I didn't ordinarily mm. have or would never have entertained. I'm suddenly staring at women that I've never, I've never even thought about looking like. Mm. Thinking, oh, I don't look like her. Oh, 
Oh, I don't have those shoes. Mm. Oh, maybe I'll buy the shoes. <gasps> i do that ab workout tomorrow. Oh, oh, I need to post another picture. Oh, what, am I still relevant? Oh, God, oh, I'm not keeping up with this. Oh, but this is a new trend. Oh, but my feed doesn't look... Uh, and then mm. it becomes white noise that is so unproductive to be around. And I, I'm so scared of what it must be like to be 14 or 15 growing yeah, up totally. with that. I was I was definitely I mean when I was eleven I had MySpace and then Bebo and then you know I was very much of the generation that was thrown in growing up on it, but not to the extent that young people are now. It's exacerbated to a point where it's worrying. Does it ever affect your writing? Do you switch it off if you are sitting down to write? Yeah. I can't look at my phone. Um, I, I mean, firstly, I, I write a lot on my phone. Mm. But I'll write on my notes, mm. and that feels quite nice. That feels like I'm just texting a friend. It doesn't have to be too final, or I can be very honest there uh, because I'm not sat with my fingers over a keypad. Yeah. But no, I can't look at Instagram or Twitter, or because you just get sucked into. A different world and also mm. a different rhetoric I I often get scared that sometimes I'll be doing something really normal like I'll be making myself a cup of tea and then I'll feel a feeling and then my internal monologue will go you know that feeling when like I'm trying to be relatable to myself in mm. my own head like I'm I'm now thinking in accessible captions. characters and mm. captions like I'll, I'll I'll do something funny or stupid and instead of being present and feeling that I will try and condense it down to be something that is witty enough for other people to share mm. that is disgusting like, that's awful so I try and keep as far away from it as possible when I'm writing in fear that I can't imagine I'd sound particularly intelligent if, <laughs> if I did Do you still write every day? Particularly at the moment yeah that's that's also a new lesson of, oh, you want to be a writer? Oh, mm. you want to be a professional poet? You don't write for fun anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make some money? you got to do that every day, even when you don't feel like it. But I keep a diary every day, and that feels very sacred. And that's nice. That's nice to know that I've got something that I'm writing that's just, just for, for me. And is definitely just for me, not future... It's not for future me to touch. She can go away. It's not hers. It's for now. Do you have any rituals? Yeah, they're they're quite sporadic, but there are a good um, a good few where every morning I will wake up. I will. This is not very healthy, and I'm not advocating this. Uh, I will have a cup of coffee. I will have a cigarette. I will take my dog out, and then this doesn't help my cause of not sounding troubled uh i then read poetry aloud for an hour <laughs> oh wow and other people's yeah. poetry and oh you could just you know read yours for now <laughs> read my own remind yourself how wonderful you are <laughs> i did this no i think i'd my ears would bleed um i will read poetry for an hour out loud and that really helps me get into a rhythm and it, it is difficult well, I find I find writing 
generally quite difficult, mm. particularly when I'm doing it with purpose. It feels painful and mm. exhausting. And I have other friends that also write, and we always <laughs> meet up and go, "Oh God, do you remember when we wanted to be writers? That's so. That was so sweet and quaint. We didn't quite realise that every day is an exorcism of." oh god what have I got left to say do mm. I think feelings about anything anymore um so reading other people's work is really helpful because it gets you back into a rhythm and it gets you re-excited about having an opinion and having a feeling and and knowing what it is you're wanting or trying to say so I do that then I do free writing some free verse just the verbal vomit mm. um and then try and get into it but it usually happens quite late at night. I've never written anything good between 9 and 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. Maybe you should just sort of allow your clock off during those hours and it's allow yourself it's, to have it's, a nice it's time. It's really hard to convince people that you have a job and that you have purpose in the world where, I mean, my postman, I'd be so fascinated <laughs> to know what he thinks of me. He'll, every morning, he'll, I'll open the door for the post and he just looks at me. I'm either in a bright green face mask or the night before's makeup and a big dressing gown. I'm like, what do you do? Like, <laughs> how, what are you functioning on? I'm like, oh, thanks very much. Uh, Gotta go back inside. <laughs> um, yeah, I do, I, I'm much kinder on myself than I used to be. But that's because I'm in a position now, I suppose, where I know that I have to take seriously that I write better at one o'clock in the morning. Looking back at your career are there any writers or poets or indeed any kind of artist that has influenced you particularly? Um, I think the, the first time I really got into the idea of rhythm and rhyme <laughs> was listening to the Arctic Monkeys when I was like, <laughs> really? 14 and you and Gordon Brown and I loved the succinctness of the fact that they would always tell stories through their lyrics so it was always a very clear image to what was going on on that night out and who was there and what the bar looked like or and I loved that and then found it so exciting that it all rhymed and it all sounded mm. good and you know even if you read through their lyrics they sound quite nice without the music. Yeah, no, they are brilliant. Uh, so I think that was probably the first time I started taking any influence. And then Kate Tempest, I'd be a fool not to admit that I remember picking up Hold Your Own in uh, in a bookshop in New York and just sat on the floor with it. I thought, why have I never read this before? I this I want to do this. This is it. Uh, and then on a different strand, A.A. Gill, just the most Genius. stunning writer. And I've read, I've read his, um, I guess, it's, is it a memoir, autobiography, Pour Me a Life? Mm. I read it five times last year. I read it twice back to back when I first got it. And the way that he navigates language really excites me and always pushes me so much harder to think out of the box on how to describe something yeah I adore everything that he wrote I'm so sad I'm so so sad that he's not around what are you up to for the rest of the year what are your plans for 2019 I'm writing another book brilliant (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I get to say that Uh, it will be called validate me and 
on the stream of what we've been talking about, it's about growing up online um, and being a young woman constantly seeking, desperately seeking validation from all senses and how, how that drives a lot of things now. I haven't quite nailed the elevator pitch on it. Clearly, I've not spoken about it before yet. <laughs> um, so I'm doing that. Hopefully some more shows. I've loved doing readings and performing last year. It was just the best, the best thing to do. Um, and again, I don't know. And then there's some, yeah, there's some exciting things. Some exciting things coming up. I don't really know what Brilliant. I'm going to talk about. but Well, that's plenty uh and before i let you go because we have run out of time uh just one final question which i ask every guest uh which is if you could give your younger self one piece of advice or any aspiring poets listening what would it be Mm. don't don't take it too seriously and too to heart when adults tell you oh you think this is bad wait until you get older Mm. and I always remember hearing that as a kid anything that I found difficult or frustrating or upsetting it always been oh you think this is bad wait until you get older it's a load of nonsense it actually gets a lot easier because you grow so much within that time to look after yourself and understand when you're stressed how to deal with it and the problems are very different when you're older but it does get easier yeah um and you are so much more equipped with what you're going through all all the pain and the hurt and the frustration and the sadness does become less and a lot quicker than you think you'll see it to be charlie thank you so much for your time you were wonderful and to everyone listening she must be mad is out now and validate me is out in october So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. That's A-L-I-C-E-A-Z-A-N-I-A. Finally, if you do fancy coming along to watch me interview brilliant authors live, I also host a monthly live Sunday Salon at the Ned Hotel in London. For more information, visit alicezaniajarvis.com forward slash Sunday Salon. (laughs) 